Good morning, everybody. Um, right, I'm reading from Mark 15, 21 to 32. A certain man from Serene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The, writer notice, uh, the, sorry, the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saves others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see him and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. I encourage you, if you have your Bibles, there's a few scattered around the pews. Um, you can grab one, open them up to Mark chapter 15. It would be good for you to uh, follow along. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together as we open your word on this Good Friday morning. Reveal yourself to us, Lord. Penetrate our hearts with, a, with your Holy Spirit in a way which really moves us, Lord. If it's encouragement that we need, encourage us, Lord. If it's conviction we need, convict us, Lord. If it's rebuke that we need, rebuke us, Lord. If it is hope that we need, give us that hope, Lord. And through all this, strengthen our faith, Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, around his 50th birthday, Pastor Ed Dobson was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Sorry for all the nurses and doctors. I have no idea how to say that. Uh, or Lou Reg's, uh, Gehrig's disease. Over time, the, the disease attacks neurons that control voluntary muscles. Um, as nerve cells degenerate, muscles atrophy, there's no known cure, and eventually the body just gives out. Shortly after the diagnosis, Dobson wrote this. He wrote, I felt like I was sinking into the darkness. My life was over. I felt like I had been buried alive. But 13 years later, Dobson says he has a very different outlook on life and on what it means to follow Christ. Before the disease, he basically focused on the resurrected Jesus. Now, he says, he focuses a great time on the suffering Jesus. Even when my body doesn't work, Dobson says, I remember that Jesus who created the universe limited himself to the human body. I find encouragement in Good Friday. I want to get to Sunday 
but I'm more focused on the suffering. See, Good Friday is without doubt a time focused on suffering, the suffering of Jesus, his death on the cross. But we need to be careful not to move too quick to Sunday, too quick to the resurrection. Because if we do, I think we're, I think we're going to miss one of the most relevant realities of Jesus for our world today, and that is suffering. And if we move too quick to resurrection, we fail to identify clearly with how people are actually living their life. See, the suffering of Jesus gives meaning to the suffering of our world. And the suffering of our world is universal. And the passage we're considering this morning, Mark 15, 21 to 41, is an account of the final nine hours of Jesus' life. And it's divided into three clear sections. In verses 21 to 24, Jesus suffers as he is led to the cross. In verses 25 to 32, Jesus suffers as he is mocked on the cross. And in verses 33 to 41, Jesus suffers as he dies on the cross. And as we consider the great destructive realities of Jesus' final hours, we are going to discover uh, that it's not someone that we should ultimately pity. See, we would do ourselves a disservice to move out of here and just feel sorry for all that Jesus has gone through. No, we should move out of here today and see in this passage that he is someone that we should worship. So let's look at the first scene here where Jesus suffers as he is led uh, to the cross to be crucified. Have a look at verses 21 to 24. I'll read that again. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way up from the, in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Now there's an old hymn which some of you uh, will be very familiar with called uh, There's a Green Hill Far Away. And it goes, There's a green hill far away without a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. It's kind of a lovely picture in many respects, isn't it? A pretty green hill far away from the city wall, sheep, cows, nice flowers in the background, a light summer breeze. Well, the truth is Golgotha was anything but a green hill far away from a city wall. The most likely place was just outside of the city wall. And it wasn't a green hill, it was probably a rocky hill. And it it was to maximise the number of passers-by who could mock the person being crucified and to act as a deterrent from anyone else wanting to do a crime against the Roman Empire. It was to maximise the shame of the person. Now, Golgotha was the place of the skull, and it could be because there were so many people who were crucified there, but it could also be because it looked like a skull. Now, I was in, uh, I was in Israel uh, in 2014, and uh, whether you can see it or not, at certain angles you can see... Now, in Israel, there's a great saying, if it's not here, it's near. Now, this is probably the place 
of crucifixion. This is probably Golgotha. And it does look like a bit of a skull. Now it's a bus station. And I think that's a good thing because it would have been a place filled with activity. It wasn't a green hill far away. It was a place which could maximise the insults thrown at those who were crucified. It was just outside of the city wall. So if you come to the right there, the city wall's not far and you can see it. See, by this time, Jesus was so exhausted, we're told that he couldn't even carry the crossbeam. It was tradition for all the prisoners to carry their crossbeam uh, to the place they were being crucified. So it all started back in the Passover meal. Jesus has been up all night. The Passover meal would have been late into the night. Uh, we hear there that he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. And then he goes on to Gethsemane, where we saw that he cried out uh, in anguish. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. We're told he sweated droplets like blood in anguish as he faced taking on the sin of the world as the only righteous one. He was immediately taken before the Sanhedrin. He'd been arrested because of his betrayal. They came with clubs and he goes, well, what am I, leading a rebellion? They take him before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. And then we're told that they spat on him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and they beat him again. Well, very early in the morning, he's been up all night, he was taken to Pilate where he was sentenced to be crucified. He was then flogged again. He was mocked with a purple robe. They twisted a crown of thorns onto his head. He was beaten with a staff. And again, he was spat upon. They spat upon him. By the time he's led away to be crucified, the anguish, the beatings, the ridicule, the floggings, they had completely drained all his physical energy. He was completely overwhelmed. He couldn't carry his crossbeam. Now you see, Mark mentions Alexander and Rufus. Now when he wrote this, Possibly they were well known amongst, oh, they, you know, it was Simon who carried, uh, it was Simon who carried, he, that, he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's all we really know about Simon. We don't need to talk much more about him. But he was just passing by. And the Romans could do whatever they wanted. They could tell anyone to do anything for them, the centurions. So they say, hey, you, come and carry this guy's crossbeam because Jesus couldn't carry it himself. That's how exhausted he was. Despised and rejected by mankind. Isaiah 53, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Blood, swollen face, bruises, cuts, other people spit all over him. And they bring him to the place called Golgotha, the skull. He was offered wine and myrrh to dull the pain. Now that was a mixture they offered all the prisoners because of the excruciating pain 
that was part of the cross. It was like an anesthetic. It dulled the pain. But Jesus refuses it in verse 23, choosing to suffer to the extent. And if you think about it, he wouldn't have been able to, to respond on the cross as he responded uh, in, in many ways. But he refuses it. Now, there's a reason I use the word excruciating. It's from the same Latin root word as crucified. There's a reason excruciating is the word for this. Crucifixion was excruciating. In fact, Cicero, the Roman writer, said, let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen, nay, not even near his thoughts, his eyes, nor his ears. The Romans would never do this to their own. It was only for those considered outside of the Roman Empire. It was shameful for Romans to even think about it. Well, Jesus was stripped naked. The soldiers cast lots for his clothing, adding to this great shame. His hands and his feet were nailed to the cross. The cross was raised up into a hole. And there... He was left to hang. A small ledge would have been about halfway up, maybe around his feet, which helped the prisoner to just push themselves up to breathe. See, eventually, as the prisoner had no longer any strength, their blood circulation would stop, they could have organ failure, and asphyxiation or, or, or suffocation as the body strained under its own weight. See, it was maximising the torture. They had to keep pulling themselves up to breathe. And when eventually they couldn't anymore, their body would shut down and they would finally die, maybe two days away. But with just three simple words in the Greek, four in our English, Mark says... And they crucified him. See, Jesus suffered as he was led to the cross and was crucified. But in scene two here, we see that it wasn't just physical abuse that Jesus suffered, it was verbal abuse. Jesus suffers as he's mocked on the cross. We're told in verse 25 it was 9am, three hours after they started uh, leading him to the cross, that they crucified him. Remember, this is a busy time in a busy, a busy place. 9 a.m. in the morning, frantic activity. There was a reason that they hung a sign over him to add to his shame. Well, this is, this is who he is, the king of the Jews. Well, even though the leaders said, don't say the king of the Jews, say so he claimed to be the king of the Jews. It's obvious that everyone knew how pathetic this was. A king with authority wouldn't be cursed by hanging from a cross. A true king wouldn't have ended up like that. And then we're told in verse 29 to 32, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him saying, among themselves, saying, he saved others. He can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, 
come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then the criminals, those crucified with him, also heaped insults of him, on him. See, the mockery is bad enough. But the patronising shaking of the head, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but that's one of the most offensive things that you can ever do. Ellie and I, when we were up in Kununurra, we, uh, Obi was born and he might have been a few months old. He wasn't old at all. And we had to get an ultrasound done on his stomach. Now, because we were so remote, they were going to fly us to Perth and it would have taken three months. And then we had to visit Sydney. And so we, being in the big city now, we thought, oh, we'll go to the doctor and see if we can. And we got in the same day. That's how different it is. Anyway, so we take him into Penrith because Ellie's uh, family lives up here. We took him into Penrith, had the ultrasound done. And as we were coming out, it was time for him to sleep. We had a pram which could lay flat. So we laid him on the pram, hopefully, hoping he'll go to sleep. And as we're wheeling through the, through the uh, waiting area of this um, specialist ultrasound clinic, it was quite busy, very busy, I suddenly see this older lady, that's irrelevant, her age, but this older lady just look at us and start shaking her head. And then she turns to the person next to her and goes, they haven't even strapped their baby in. (laughs) And then she goes. Now I'm glad Ellie was with me because I can guarantee that I wouldn't have been fit to be a pastor standing in front of you this morning with what I wanted to tell that lady and what I was prepared to tell her. There is nothing more patronising and someone who has no idea, no idea what's going on here. But look at what Mark records here. Verse 29, they're shaking their heads as they hurled insults at him. You are pathetic. You said you could rebuild the temple in three days. You can't even get yourself down from the cross. If you want to know what shame and humiliation and rejection is, see back in chapter 14, once Jesus was arrested, we're told everyone deserted him and fled. His disciples disowned him. The Jewish leaders reject him. The Gentile leaders reject him. Peter, the rock on which the church was to be built, three times rejects him. And now he's in the everyday people, the ones who he'd been ministering to, who had been giving hope to, and now they're rejecting him. The God of the universe, the creator of them, all creation is looking at him as he has given up everything to come and dwell amongst them, to die on the cross as a substitute for their sin. And the all of creation is looking at him and going, how pathetic. How pathetic. He's been suffering as he's led to the cross. He has now suffered as he is mocked on the cross. And now he suffers as he dies on the cross. 
Let me read you verses 33 and 34. At noon, this is three hours after he's been crucified, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus spends six hours on the cross and for the final three hours, darkness is over the whole land. As the light of the world has his final three hours to bring light into the world, the world is filled with darkness. And Jesus cries out to his father, why? If you remember back to Gethsemane, we saw the fullness of Jesus' humanity. If there is any way, let us not underestimate how, how much he is suffering here. In all of his humanity, he is crying out, why? Not because he doesn't know why. Because of the anguish and the suffering. The one whom he is at one with, the Father, perfect love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father turns his face away. The destruction within the anguish, not just of the Son's soul, but the Father's soul. As they know that this must be done. Why? Because the rest of the world is looking at them going, you're pathetic. What great love. What great love. Do you ever question God's love for you? And just look to the cross. So the temptation for us today is to stick in this suffering. But you see, in this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting the first line of Psalm 22. And that is a psalm that begins with great suffering. Let me read those first eight verses for you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. You see, what we're encountering here is the great fulfilment of the prophecy of Scripture. We're not just encountering a good man who has died on the cross. 
we are encountering a man who has been in control of this situation from start to finish. One, the God of the universe who is choosing to allow his people to look up at him and go... Why? Because he is demonstrating his great love for you in this, that while you were a sinner... He died for you. He took the beatings. He took the spitting. He took the the whipping. He took the crown of thorns. He took the mockery. And he is taking you, shaking your head and tut, tut, tutting at him. But you see, Psalm 22 doesn't finish that way. Psalm 22 finishes like this, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. We're told his final words in another gospel, it is finished. You see, this isn't a place where we need to pity Jesus. This is a place where we need to worship him, even though we've just spat upon him. Because the very reason that he is taking all of this and dying on the cross is for this very reason. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Back in Mark, the next two verses, verse 38 at 39, we're told the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, people who were crucified had their life slowly leave them. They pass out and eventually they stop breathing. They have no control over that. It could take two days. They'd be too exhausted to to be awake, let alone to cry out anything. The centurion had seen people crucified over and over and over. And he's looking up at this man who cries out and then just dies. John 10, Jesus reveals himself as the good shepherd and then he says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. No Jew, no Gentile, no Herod, no Pilate, no Sanhedrin, no Centurion. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. And the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. See, what's happening and unfolding is that the very people who are mocking him 
for prophesying, saying, oh, that or, he can't do that, are fulfilling the prophecy in what they're doing. That's the great irony in what's happening here. We look at him with self-pity, but we don't need to. We need to look at him with awe. Because what God would do that? Well, a God who is love and who is so committed to you, even that he could have called 10,000 legions of angels to destroy the earth, to destroy them who oppose him. He lays his life down. He's not a victim here. He is the saviour. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. He's been saying it over and over that this is going to happen. But the good news is that even though we may spit at him, even though we may mock him, even though we may turn and reject him in our everyday life, the very act of suffering and dying on that cross opens up a forgiveness that can never leave us nor forsake us. Surely this man was the son of God. And it comes to a great conclusion in all of Mark. Mark begins his whole, his whole gospel by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Look at that. I couldn't remember it. That's how he started his gospel. And now, of all people, a Roman centurion is the one who's declaring that. And this is the whole thing. Jesus is the Son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So here's our challenge this morning. Have you grasped that in your life? Have you grasped that you're in need of a saviour for a start? But have you grasped that we're not just talking some some abstract ideology, some ideal or idea. We are talking about a, a, a historical reality with more eyewitnesses and more historical foundation than even Julius Caesar. The eyewitnesses and the witnesses and the accounts that we have of Jesus in these moments is far more reputable in a historian's eyes than that of Julius Caesar. But we will not accept these. Why? Because we would rather go, might have been a good teacher. Yeah, seemed like a good guy. Hey, look at that great example of him suffering. I can take that on to my life and I can suffer better. That's not the point here. The point is he's the son of God who takes away the sin of the world, which means that we all need to come to him for salvation. But we come to him with great assurance because we know how much he loves us because look at the cross. Look at all he's done. As we've been going, let me challenge you this morning. If you have committed your life to Jesus, 
strengthen that love for him as you reflect on the love he has for you. And don't waste your life. But if you're yet to give your life to Jesus, let me encourage you to come before him, ask forgiveness for your sin. Lay your life down. Because on Sunday, when we see that he's raised again to life, we can see that everything he claims about himself is true and that there's no better place to be, to be saved from your sin, to be taken from the darkness to the light. And the promise is that you will have every, every tear wiped from your eye, that every suffering will be disappeared in the life to come. So let me encourage you, don't overlook Jesus this Easter. Put your trust in him and follow him because there's no better place to be. Father God, thank you for this wonderful image of your love for us. As much as it breaks our heart to see the cost, it brings great rejoicing as your Holy Spirit confirms with us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Saviour of the world. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Father, thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that you love us. And thank you that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a good day, Lord. It's a good Friday. Help us never to forget that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.